Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast but without all the usual bollocks. My guest this week is former Blackpool, QPR, Leeds and Burnley footballer Clark Carlisle. Clark was an imposing centre-back between the years 1997 and 2014 for those and a few other clubs too. I saw him playing for QPR in the 2004 playoff final against Cardiff at the Millennium Stadium and I thought he was that good he was going to go on to play for England and he might have done. But a year later, he was reported to have taken some months out of football to get treatment for alcohol problems. And from then on, he seemed to be in the news as much for mental health issues as he was for football. Depression, drinking, and in 2014, a suicide attempt that almost killed him. In 2017, he tried to take his life once more. Despite all of these struggles he's had, he's well known as being one of the most energetic, intelligent, and articulate figures in the footballing world. Clark is eloquent and insightful on everything from football to addiction to mental health and all sorts of other stuff. And he was characteristically open and honest in our chat about his life. It was a real pleasure to have him on The Reset and I hope you enjoy listening. Clark Carlisle, welcome to The Reset. Oh, thank you, Sam. Thank you for asking me, mate. I'm privileged. Well, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on, mate. Um, yeah, for years, you've been someone who's who's spoken out about just the sort of stuff we discuss on The Reset. Um, you're a pioneer in that sense, really. <laughs> you were, though, mate, because now you've seen in, like, just the last couple of years, the subjects of mental health um, are being discussed more openly in society as a whole, but also, particularly in football, has really made a lot of progress, which... You must be really happy about because we can go back years and you were one of the first footballers I remember speaking out about your own personal struggles. Uh, was that particularly hard back back then? Because the, the atmosphere oh. in the sport wasn't really welcoming to that kind of thing. Do you know what, mate? You make a really good point. I've got to think of the different times because my um, my journey, for one of the cliche, was drip fed. Like into my life in, in the context of me understanding what was going on and where I was at. Right. And also in societal understanding. You talk about pioneers, you know, Stan's situation, Stan Collymore was yeah. before mine. That's and I can vividly remember my thinking at the time is, what the hell? 
this guy's Premier League footballer, you know, he's earning so much money. I had no understanding of it then. And then I talk about my journey. Um, The first thing I did, Sam, was going to alcohol rehab. Yeah, I, I went there in, in 2003 for 28 days. And that's because we believed at the time that I was an alcohol addict. And I came out of there uh, sober for two years, but still my behavior was erratic and self-destructive um, every two or three months. Uh, and that's because I actually had depression. I didn't have a drink problem. What I was doing was self-medicating in as much as Every time I had a depressive episode or every time, you know, the the cloud descended on me, I was actively avoiding my emotions and drink at first was the only way I knew how. Now, the reason why I put it in that context is because when I went into alcohol rehab, um, Tony Adams and Paul Merson had already paved the way for that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so there was a little bit of understanding and acceptance around that. Yeah. So when I went in, you know, the industry was like, oh yeah, look, Clark's like Tony and, and Paul. Yeah. And it was it was accepted. Um, and then further down the line, when I had uh, my depression diagnosed and I was actively suicidal, it society had changed again. You know, my understanding had changed, societal understanding had changed. And in between those two periods of time, which is seven years, mate, no, 10 years, 10 years between A and B, um, I I had already become chairman of the PFA. I'd already spoken openly and publicly about drink and that impact on my life. So it's almost as though I was synonymous with speaking openly about personal experience. And by the time my depression came to the fore, it was expected. So it didn't really take a toll on me because it was expected of me. And I was in a place where I knew that speaking about drinking had helped people. I knew that speaking about drinking had had a positive response. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't any stretch for me to speak about this newfound information in my life. So it was a gradual thing, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's really interesting, the connection between depression, alcohol, what what constitutes an alcoholic. I mean, do you feel that when you when when you were treated for alcohol problems, that mm. uh, that whoever was treating you or, or you yourself didn't really get to the heart of that at the time? Then do you think that was a missed opportunity? Definitely, uh, I don't blame anyone in the in that process because again, I think it reflected societal understanding. Mm. So what happened at the time was. Um, the the drinking w- w- was treated as a, a problem and an illness in and of itself. Yeah. And then there was a, a notion that there might be something else going on as well. What, what wasn't put together was that the drinking was a symptom of the mental health issue. And, you you know, you you say it's interesting. I think it's really interesting and uh, about the term addict and people might slap me for this, especially those who are in the the 12 step process. And my personal belief is that the majority of people who are being treated as addicts now and who are going through a 12 step process and a white knuckling and all the rest, I don't believe they are bona fide addicts. 
I think they're people who are using drugs, drink, gambling as uh, emotional avoidance or oblivion. And their usage is a symptom of an underlying mental health issue, which is most likely depression, but could probably be uh, PTSD, high anxiety, etc. Um, an addict, in my understanding, is someone who has a physiological dependency. My mentor, Peter Kay, he had a physiological dependency on cocaine and alcohol where he could not function each day without it. Uh, so much so, Sam, that when, when he actually went into hospital and he was in a coma, uh, they read him his last rites, his family was there, and the specialist said, let me try something. They gave him a shot of pure ethanol and that brought him out of a coma. Now that's addiction. That's a guy whose body physically depended on the substance to, to live, to function. That wasn't me. I wasn't brown bagging every day. I wasn't sat in a park and I needed to drink every day. But there were periods of time where uh, emotions surfaced, situations uh, circumstantially were, um, were it, of, a, of a type that I didn't know how to manage them and manage myself within them. And I had to run away. I had to, I had to run away um, either from the headspace or, or totally, absolute oblivion. And that's why my, um, my coping mechanisms were so transferable. You know, it was drink because drink took away. Um, I, I didn't care. You know, I didn't drink because I need to drink. I drank because when I was drunk, I didn't care. And the, the other consequence of that was that I actually didn't care about anything. So that's why the consequences were so bad. Um, gambling again, and this this is my lo logical brain. I get involved in in the numbers and working things out, and how much have I lost, and how much do I need to win back, and blah blah blah. Uh, and that would consume my headspace, so I'm not thinking about the other things. But I think what what um, kind of exemplifies it greatest is that it could be a computer game, Sam. Mm. I get into Champ Manager for three days. You know, and that's because I, I'm in it. I'm immersed. I'm not thinking about anything else uh, or just sleep. You know, sleep was total avoidance and it was a safe place for me. So, you know, I, I was never an addict. I was someone who uh, sought avoidance or oblivion and did it expertly. Yeah, I totally can relate to that. And I think that, you know, we all struggle uh, most most people who have had substance issues struggle with that thing of of having time on their hands and being a, and struggle with the idea of just being able to be still. Yeah. In a way, it might have helped you become a top level sportsman, because because I suppose you've got an immersive all or nothing attitude to stuff. It's not that it might have helped. It, I think it's fundamental. Right. I think it's fundamental to be an elite athlete. You have to have that blinkered, almost obsessive approach where you are going to commit yourself to this to the detriment of everything else in your life. You're that blinkered, you're that focused, you're that goal-oriented. Um, the, the, where the imbalance comes is when you take that approach and apply it to the other parts of your life. 
Applying it in your work context is fundamental. It's necessary. You have to do it. But we, what I wasn't taught, and I think it's only just starting to come in now at academies in football, at least, is understanding the whole self. You need to do this as a footballer to be a footballer. But when you're trying to be Clark Carlisle, when you're trying to be Clark the son, Clark the brother, Clark the partner, you need a different set of attributes. You need a different set of standards and you need a level of compassion for yourself and the other person that allows for imperfection, that allows for foibles, that allows you or them to be less than and it to be all right. But that was never taught to me and never understood by me. And I'm, I'm all, I've only just gotten to grips with it the past three years with, with my wife, Sam. It's about control, isn't it? A lot of it. It's about people. Oh, it's a huge element. Definitely. People thinking I can control everything. So you can control your performance by training double hard, you know, and and and, and just it, you know increasing your ability all the time. And then people, people, are you laughing at the idea of you training double no, hard? Sam, you just you just used a term that I've not heard since 1997. It's a black pill term. All these everything. If it was very, it was double. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's double quality. That's double art. Are you are you insulting my my lingo here? Are you saying that I'm like an old man who's like no. backdated terms? because <laughs> that's, that's the sort of shit my kids throw at me all the time they go what are you using that term for that's like from three years ago mate <laughs> I, i'm not i'm not shaming you i love it that, that, just, that just brought some real fondness into my heart it reminded me of a kid called uh, lee shotledge lee shotledge wow do you know what um I digress here, but yeah. um, there were so many players who I played with uh, throughout my career who never actually got to first team or made it, who were far better than a lot of players who I've seen playing first team and make it. Mm. Lee Shotledge is one of them, you know. He, he was a midfield terrier. He was like um, Lee Catamole. Um, he was like James Milner. He, he, you know, this kid was incredible, but just for time, circumstance and opportunity, didn't make it. And you just saying, you know, double R now, that it brings him to mind. And do you know what it brings to mind? I wonder where he's at now. Mm. You know, Blackpool has 20, uh, no, 12 of the 20 most deprived air quarters in, in the country. It, it, right. it's, a, it's a town that is economically on its backside. And I wonder where he is now with that expectation that he had from 11 when he was, you know, God's gift to midfield football through to 21. And then he, he's, he's ejected back into Blackpool socioeconomic life. Yeah. You know, that, I, wow. I, I interviewed one, one time I interviewed Liam Brady when he was in charge of Arsenal's Academy. And, and yeah. he, said, he said to me, that the difference between players who make it to elite level and those who don't quite go as far, he goes, sometimes is like a, just a, 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 in terms of technical ability is a tiny difference, no difference at all. It's usually just like 5%, 2% attitude. And he, he gave me an example. He said that um, when he had Jermaine Pennant at Arsenal, yeah. he said he should have been a player he said most scouts who watched him or coach who watched him fully expected him in terms of ability to win 100 England caps and play for yeah. Real Madrid, right? And his best mate was Ashley Cole. 
And people yeah. thought, actually, Cole's decent. He'll probably make the first team. And he said, in yeah. fact, one of them went on to win the Champions League and the other one didn't fulfill his potential. And he goes, it was entirely because Ashley Cole was the sort of bloke who would never go out, only train, eat perfectly and live exactly as you had to live as a pro. And Jermaine Pennant had a difficult life, difficult background with family and, 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 all, and friends and all the rest of it. And it was just that little 2% that made the difference between two outcomes in their career. Mate, I can, I can actually qualify that further because Ash did go out because they, these were the guys who I used to knock about with, right. um, you know, in uh, Soho Club and stuff and Kensington Roof Gardens. But Ash would be sober and yeah. he'd, he'd go home at midnight, whereas me and Penners would be walking around with two bottles of Laurent Perrier Rosé, <laughs> clinking, <laughs> clinking them together until seven in the morning. Yeah. And therein yeah. lies the difference. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, I always think that, like, especially in that era, the era when you were at your, you know, the peak of your playing days and, and Ashley Cole was very, very famous, the players had a tabloid reputation for being bad boys. It's not so much the case anymore, but there was a reputation in the noughties that all footballers were bad, right? Mm -hmm. And they, But then I remember thinking to myself after that chat with Liam Brady, in actual fact, all of these lads who are playing in the Premier League when they were teenagers, they were the ones who were behaving themselves because that's why they're now Premier League players, right? Exactly, mate. And this is it. You, you, you commit yourself to the detriment of everything. That's all your social interactions, all your friendship groups. You know, while all your mates are going down the park and camping out and doing two drag drop with a bottle of Meridown cider. <laughs> and you're, you're being ferried to, to Blackburn and Blackpool and all over the place to, you know, to train. And, and you do this. And one of the things that I took great umbrage with about that whole perception of footballers is that the, the, the guys who were being judged were aged between 16 and 30. Mm. and they were probably misbehaving is a strong word but they were socializing having a bit of fun maybe once a week maybe once a fortnight all in tandem with a totally committed and professional lifestyle okay. if you compared their behavior with the behavior of the general population of 16 to 30 year olds who were going out Friday, Saturday, having a super Sunday, watching the football, mm. doing this, that and the other. And what they were getting up to on a, on a daily, weekly basis. Footballers are saints. Yeah. Honestly, they're hardworking, committed saints. And, and this was evidence to me when I retired, I joined a golf club and I got in a WhatsApp group with a group of lads. Mate, these guys are wrong uns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the, yeah. I'm talking about pushing the lines of legality for A, B and C and what they claim. Oh, it's all right. It's only social drugs. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, all, it's all right. It's only off the back of a lorry and it's only this, that and the other. You know, the, the repeated daily criminality and behaviour mm -hmm. of gen, the general population it is, it, well, it isn't held to account because they're not, high profile and yeah. and they're not perceived to be lucky to be in their job yeah yeah and there is a lot of that and, uh, and uh, by the way i mean i'm obviously a journalist myself by by trade but 
I've got to say, the tabloid journalists who were probably the ones giving you all that stick, if you saw what their day-to-day lifestyles were like. What, at the press club? (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I've been there one or two times. Yeah, unbelievable. And, you know, there was a lot of that. And there's still you still see a little bit of it that, that it's really interesting you say that, about the idea that you're lucky. I mean, that must have... You know, you put that in quote marks and and it's like, you know, obviously you're saying, you know, the, you, you are people who have worked your balls off to be where you are. You, you've taken that, a certain amount of natural talent, but that's obviously not enough. You need to add a, a whole lot of hard work to it. And yet you're continually told by society and the media that you're lucky. Right. Mm-hmm. And that must have an impact on mental health. Everyone has. We talk. We hear so much about things like imposter syndrome. You know, yes. And, and does, does that affect you when you're on top career. of your game? And and a lot of you are from ordinary backgrounds, ordinary working class backgrounds. Suddenly you're earning huge sums of money, and you're being made to feel guilty about that. Does that was that one of the big factors in in your mental health struggles? It contributes, Sam. It, that imposter syndrome that you talk about. Oh, mate! For so many years, I felt like a charlatan, and and how that works is is there's you have a residual anxiety that you're going to get found out any minute. Any game's going to be your last because they're going to be like, who the hell is this joker? <laughs> and you're going to get hoyed out on the scrap heap. And it's it's constant. And it's almost impossible to be quashed because in football, there is no amount of self-validation that will cement your career or your journey. Every part of the football industry depends on external validation, whether it's team selection, whether it's relationships with coaches and managers, whether it's getting a new contract, whether it's getting a transfer to a big club or down to League Two. Everything depends on what that person thinks of you and that person thinks of you, which is why when you have the guy in the newspaper giving you a four out of 10, it burns, not because he's giving you a four out of 10, but his newspaper is now going to be read by 5 million people, and they all see that you got a four out of 10, and their opinion might be influential. All the stuff on social media, the compliments, yeah, you've had them all your life, but that one negative view that might be seen by someone who's influential and they might share that negative view and they might think that I'm terrible and I'm an imposter and get hoyed out. Mm. So all of these external views are relevant, even though in the context of life, they're irrelevant. And it's only when I've come out of that, that sport and I can actually look at myself and say, Clark, you know, you, you stand for this you believe this, you, you, you show honesty and integrity and authenticity on a daily basis and, and you give this to your family and you give this to your friends, you understand your boundaries, you are worth it. Mm-hmm. It's only now that I can accept that I'm worth it because there is no external uh, opinion or perspective that is going to have a, a, um, a monumental and possibly detrimental impact on my steps moving forward. But throughout your career, everything is dependent on what the next person thinks. So was football at the root of your depression or was it something that you can trace back before then? Football's never been the root of my depression. 
And bring me back to the root of my depression because I want to say something that I think is really important and it, hopefully it will speak to people who, who, um, who have a job or a life that has repeated targets and success and ups and downs. What football did was it gave uh, valid circumstances to mask my depression. So, you know, I was going uh, in my own emotional life on these intense ups and downs. But because in football, winning and losing, getting a transfer, not getting a transfer, getting promoted or losing a playoff final are bona fide intense highs and lows. They gave an explanation for the way that I was feeling. So if I had a massive low at a weekend, people would be like, oh, yeah, they, they got smacked 5-0. Of course he's low. When really I was actually experiencing an emotional low that was disproportionate. Does that make sense? Yeah. Totally. You know, and then the the playing the matches and the highs and, and, and winning promotion, they gave the adrenaline, the endorphin boost. They gave that temporary high to alleviate the signs of my depression. So the, the whole industry serves to mask whatever might be going on underneath. But when we talk about the root of my depression, mate, mine, mine is born out of an inability to manage emotions. I, I was never emotionally literate. You know, my upbringing was, you know, that's Caribbean mentality. You don't talk about our business. What goes on behind this door stays behind this door. And not only that, what do you mean you're crying? I'll give you something to cry about. Yeah. I mean, you're angry. I'm, you know, I'm the one who I was taught to suppress and not show emotions and not talk to anybody. The, uh, the Caucasian side of my family, stiff British upper lip, you know, stoic in the face of advers uh, adversity. You, you don't betray your emotions to anyone. You know, if anyone asks how you are, yes, I'm fine. All of that served to um, condition me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. To suppress emotions and to not communicate. So because of that, when I, if I was to encounter any kind of, of you know, serious trauma in my life, I wouldn't have managed it in a way that was healthy or, or, or productive. Um, it just so happens that I went into football and there are lots of, you know, highs and lows to, to manage and I, and I didn't manage those well. When you first started succeeding as a young man in football and you got on that sort of trajectory, 
yeah. that eventually took you, you know, to to playing professional football. Um, I'm I'm assuming a, a lot of that in the early stages is just non-stop, not non-stop, but a lot of positive experiences because mm. you're you're always going to be first your top of your school team, then your top of your county team, then your top, and so it's all good, good, good. And then it's only once you reach the top where you start having to deal with negative things. And, and then all that unresolved stuff from your childhood spills out. That's my amateur analysis that I'm thinking as you're going along there. Mate, it's close to the bone. And I'm glad you bring school school team in because it's at that age, it's at 11, 12, where you start to be othered. Mm. And, and not in a bad way. You start to be othered as someone who's special, golden yeah. balls you know, going to do this, that and the other. And you're right, you get fed with all this glory and and, and glitter and you're taking, you get days off school because you've got to go and play in the FA Youth Cup, you know, and when you come back, your teacher's not teaching you. They're talking about the match at the weekend and all the rest of it. And you are so special. And also the rungs of the ladder you you climb them really quickly in those early years. You know, you go from centre of excellence to schoolboy to, to B team, A team, youth team, reserve team, very, very quickly, three, four, five years. But then getting into the first team and staying there is the hardest step and has the most knockbacks. But in my personal experience, my first serious knockback was at 14 years of age. When Blackburn released me, they released me and they signed uh, this kid, he was bang average, uh, David Dunn. (laughs) 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 They they, they released me. Uh, Alan Irving released me and was like, Clark, you know, you're not good enough for us. And um, I cried for three days. I vowed never to play football again. And then about a week later, Fred O'Donoghue came and signed me for Blackpool. And... It, that was the first time that my expectations were kind of, you know, I'm not going to say totally suppressed, but I lowered my expectations mm. at that point. And because I'd been found wanting there, it was the first time that doubt had come into my journey. And I think that it was probably from from 15 was when the the uh, imposter syndrome came into my journey and that residual fear about not being good enough. Uh, uh, and even though I'd given everything that I had, someone could just toss me to the curb. Mm. So when you look at, at all, the, obviously you've got to grips in recent years on <laughs> where all of this stems from. Um, mm. what, what has helped you? Obviously there was, you say you did, you know, two two years of, of alcohol rehabilitation. You you you've tried a, a number of different things. I assume. What what do you think has been the most useful to you in getting a grip on all of this stuff? Uh, the the biggest pro progress for for me was made with the correct diagnosis. Right. I got the correct diagnosis, which took any doubt about what was going on. And the only reason that that is important, because I don't even think about it now, is to get the correct diagnosis means that I went on the correct medication and the correct amount of medication. Mm. I was actually on too much, so for, right. for like five years. So uh, when I came out of Blackburn Psych Hospital 2017, they said, we're taking your medication down 60 percent. 
and we're putting your therapy up 99%. And I came out of there and I entered into cognitive analytical therapy, C-A-T. And it totally transformed my understanding of me. That's where the biggest change came because uh, in C-A-T, you map out your thoughts uh, uh, and your actions and responses. Uh, um, initially as I understand them and then as you go on through your therapy sessions your therapist kind of you know dissects those thoughts and says well actually what happens just before this and I'll be like oh yeah this happens and then this happens and we're filling all these blanks and it came to a point where I had like a you know a proper full a to z of my mind but the, the, the light bulb was that there are so many junctures where I have choice. Mm. You know, um, I believe that because A happened, Z was inevitable. Whereas before, there are so many points before then where I have the power to choose a different course of action. And understanding that, Sat, honestly, it, it transformed the way that I, I am the way that I be, you know, the way that I expect things in my life, so much so that something happens now, and as long as it doesn't warrant an immediate reaction, I will take the time. I'll say, okay, so there's this. How does this make me feel? Is what I'm feeling appropriate? What could happen from here? What do I want to happen from here? Okay, we'll go and do this. And just that process, which can take... 10 seconds, it can take 10 minutes, it might take an hour and chatting with my wife. It has transformed the outcomes of every situation in my life. So it's about, I guess, learning how to be a bit more rational in your response to things, less emotional? Uh, Very much rational. Um, Emotions are important. Emotions are our catalyst to action. You know, when we when we have a, a, an emotion that rises, that then drives our action. Mm. My problem was that I either didn't know what emotion it was that was rising, or as soon as it started to rise, I was like, you know, whoop, whoop, suppress, dive, ignore, ignore, dive, dive. Mm. Now I've learned to allow that emotion to come, allow it to come. And if it's fear, then you know what, what am I afraid of? Um and rationalize that so I'm not less emotional if anything I'm actually more emotional because I sit with them and you know what at first that's really hard because it's so uncomfortable it's so uncomfortable sat in my back garden feeling frightened Mm. but once I do it once it becomes easier and easier and easier to do it again and again and again and the next time I do it it doesn't last as long and I don't feel as frightened. The depth of the emotion isn't as intense. Uh, and as I get further along the journey, now I could just be like, oh yeah, that's raised a fear in me, but you know what? That's not actually an appropriate fear. And what I've loved about this journey is that understanding that, understanding my emotions and how I react to them and the fact that I can control it, has now allowed me to look deeper into my responses in life. Uh, There are so many things that we respond, react, like automatically, subconsciously, 
when the the facts of the of the situation aren't rooted in the situation they're rooted in something that was two five ten twenty years ago classic example my wife's quite flat-footed um not because you know she's a behemoth it's because she had a she, she was poorly about eight years ago wheelchair bound had to right. learn to walk again right. and uh, she's quite flat-footed in that and you know really heavy around the house and initially uh, when she stomped her feet i'd be like visceral tightening yeah. and because i had that response i'd be like carrie what are you doing you know what, what what what's wrong why are you stomping about She's like, I'm not stomping about. And then I had a couple of sessions about it. And do you know what it is, Sam? And this blew my mind. Every time Carrie stomped her feet around, I tightened because my brain automatically remembered my dad coming home from work and stomping up the stairs, ready to give me a beating because I've been naughty. Right. And it was that, it was that, um, oh, self-preservation that deep-rooted fear of being in trouble when I was a kid you know when you have no control over it yeah uh, and you're gonna get punished and it was that fear that rose in me whenever I heard loud noises around the house but now I know that I'm like bloody hell yeah you know it's that emotion that's in the wrong place it's not the footsteps so now when Carrie bats about the house, I'm like, oh, here she comes, LAPD. <laughs> <laughs> and so, the emotion so, isn't attached to so it. That's really interesting that. So we're, we're, our brains are so programmed and very often it is bad. So, so with CAT, does, does a lot of it just go back to childhood when you start to unpick this stuff? Uh, yeah, the core of a lot of, of responses go back to childhood. Um, the, the more intense work is the layers that have been put on them by your life. Mm. Because, you know, there are things that the child in you responds to. But um, what happens is as we get older, we look to evidence that response. We look, to, we look for things that will confirm that, yes, I was right thinking this. And so, um, you know, when you go into maybe a relationship, uh, um, I'll, I'll, Carrie's not listening, so I can talk about this. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Uh, relationships for me, all of my relationships before Carrie were fundamentally flawed. And that's because um, I used to wet the bed as a kid. Uh, and my parents, mum was the love and dad was the authority and disciplinarian. I wet the bed when I woke up. Mum was angry because it had been going on for 10 years. Mm. So when I left the house, I had to desperately achieve in order to win mum's love back by the time I got home from school. So the dynamic was I had to earn mum's love and and affection. Now, when I went into relationships after that, I carried that same dynamic in. I thought that I had to earn the love and affection of the next person which meant that all of my energies were into buying love, were into being successful, were into showing and giving and and making sure that everything I did bought and earned that person's love, which which meant a massively imbalance in the relationship. No fault of the next person, all to do with what had happened with me as a kid. 
but it's only in understanding that I can come into this relationship and I know that love in this uh, context shouldn't be earned. You know, our love is unconditional one for the other. And there's there's a, a compassion and an allowance for things to be perfect or imperfect, you know, good or bad, ill or well. Uh, and that's how a healthy relationship works. So, yeah, the you know, the the root cause of that dynamic in me stemmed from my childhood. But not knowing it, I carried it into my relationships and it was layered and layered and layered because I would do something naughty and I would expect punishment from my partner, you know, or if I did something good, I would expect reward and love from my partner. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, if, you, if, if little things go wrong, say in your career and you feel like a failure, then I suppose there's a lot of fear in that if you think, oh, well, I'm a failure, she might leave me. A hundred percent, you know, I, I lay so much weight on what I did that it defined me. So if we lost, I was a bad person. I didn't deserve love and attention and affection. And I, I, I should lock myself away until I'd redeemed myself. My whole life um, prior had been one of success uh, failure, redemption. Yeah. Success, failure, redemption. So much so that to live in this place, you know, where things are all right, mm. you're not winning, you're not losing. I couldn't do it. Yeah. There, there was no such place as all right. So if things were in this middle ground, then what would normally happen is I would sabotage things so that I'd failed and then I can redeem myself. And everything's okay. Everything's every, it's so interesting that it's like everything I can relate to it a lot. Everything's got to follow almost like a Hollywood movie narrative. Yeah, definitely. We're sort and, of raised by watching films and TV shows that have those dramatic highs and mm-hmm. lows. And as a result, a lot of us can't just see that. Well, life doesn't have to be like a movie. It can just like go along in a straight line, and that's uh, really good. Exactly. You know, there is a middle ground and and good enough isn't a bad phrase. (laughs) You know, to be uh, content doesn't mean to be content with as though it's less than, you know, that my perception perspective on these phrases of being in this middle ground as was so warped, it was so out. But do you know what? I'm okay with being okay right now. In fact, it is good. I like it. <laughs> so it was 2017 um, was when you you, you uh, had a suicide attempt. Then you went into, that was presumably what led to the, the CAT and the change yeah. of medication and stuff like that. And so life has been generally on an upward trajectory for you in terms of how you cope with, with your feelings and your thoughts and stuff since then? Uh, From 2017 is the most consistent steady increase in my, in my health and my well-being. And it's running tandem with the amount of therapy that I've applied myself to. Uh, and then uh, taking the learnings from therapy and implementing them in my life. Yeah. You know, to just be in a therapy session isn't enough, Sam. You, you've got to you've got to get your your hands and your knees dirty, dig through the stuff, 
uh, have the professional guide you through the learnings and then apply them when you come out into, into the wider world again. And, um, you know, I, I didn't and we don't get everything right first time, you know, to explore things in, in therapy and to apply them in life doesn't mean that life is subsequently perfect. It doesn't mean that these coping strategies that I'd perfected over 35 years immediately go away. They don't. You know, when we came to lockdown one, and because um, Carrie and I are corporate speakers, uh, and everyone was locked down, all our work was cancelled for 10 months. Zero income. Not only that, we we literally, on the first day of lockdown, uh, day before first lockdown, moved over to Newcastle into my mother-in-law's two-bed bungalow with two kids, us two with two kids, with a view to knocking it down and building a, you know, a new house for, for us both. All of that just wiped out. And we were a family of four in my mother-in-law's spare room. Uh, and in my head, I was like, what the hell have I just done? You know, I've, do, I've just totally battered the, the, you know, my provision for my family. And then the first two or three weeks, I started to spend more time, more time on my phone, Candy Crush, Candy Crush, Golf, Candy Crush, yeah. 10, 12, 14, 16 hours a day on my phone. And Carrie, because of our journey and our understanding, she was able to say, with love, I didn't feel any accusation because we've gone on this journey together. She said, you need to ring the PFA. You need to get back into therapy. I was like, okay. So I did. And I got a new therapist, uh, Nick Mercer, Scouse guy. And I only got him because, uh, because of lockdown. He's in London. I, I wouldn't have gotten a London therapist. Um, I'd have got a local one. And we did it via Zoom. Mate, this guy, incredible took my understanding of myself and my possibilities and all the rest of it onto a different level. And that made for the past 12 months to be uh, personally and for our work and our relationship, the greatest period of progress in my entire 42 years. That's it's fantastic. incredible. That's really fantastic to hear. I'm really happy for you. Um, are you what about the, you know, the people coming up through the game now um the younger people do you think yeah. it's a better world that they're coming through now are you are you sort of you feel happier about the sort of experiences that young footballers are having in in regards to mental health um i will never be happy for crumbs from the king's table they they are in a better circumstance than i was and those before me purely because of societal growth, mm -hmm. purely because society understands more, um, not because football's doing enough. Right. Um, football, with all of the resources that it has, with a captive audience and membership, that it can apply something to really very rigidly uh, uh, and put it in the, the rules of the game in order for the industry to actually comply with the Health and Safety at Work Act 1974, they could create a world-changing and defining support system. They truly could. Mm. Um, but they won't uh, and, and they haven't because there are still too many arguments at that stakeholder table. 
about whose badge goes where, who owns it, whose responsibility is it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all very messy. So, um, do you know, I see the young players of today and I, I, I'm envious and proud of them. You know, seeing players like Marcus Rashford, you know, stand up in that activist kind of way and, and be supported in that you know, and have a, a knowledge of, of, of who he is and what his capabilities are. In my era, if you did anything other than football, you had delusions of grandeur. Who the hell did you think you are? You know, concentrate on your day job. And I like the fact that, that footballers are being received and accepted for more than just kicking a ball. Yeah. And, and with that comes... Uh, it can only happen if the person has a knowledge of themselves. Mm. So I find that really encouraging, you know, that Marcus Rashford believes that he can and is able to, you know, exert that influence and power. And that's wonderful. Um, the dynamic is very different now. Uh, you know, it, it's not so authoritarian as it used to be, uh, which, which in itself, you know, shows progress. I don't believe that we are anywhere near the end goal um, for supporting players' mental health. Uh, and I think, I think that's reflective of society, but I think football has capabilities greater than society and it should be further along the line. Clark, it's fascinating chatting to you. It's inspiring too. Um, and I, I really appreciate your time. It's so interesting. It's so much food for thought in what you said as well. And I hope that people listening will, you know, be encouraged to be, I guess, a bit more open. Not everyone has access to therapy, but just by being open and, and thinking about the sort of stuff that you've talked about it is helpful to people. Yeah, I hope so too, mate. I, I really do. It, you know, I'm, especially it's the majority of guys in demographic, isn't it? You know? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and fellas, when I was in the WhatsApp group, you know, I found loads of the guys talk to me, private message, DM, blah, blah, blah. You know, they'd say things they hadn't told their wives of, of 20 years uh, and maybe feel a bit bad about that. And I'm like, don't feel bad. You know, you don't have to be like me. But you, you, exploring and improving who you are and where you're going you don't have to tell everyone about it yeah but it's imperative that you tell the right someone about it you know so don't worry about oh if i engage with this i've got to tell the world you don't you go and do what's right for you and you do it on your terms and I can guarantee that as you in, as you improve and start to understand yourself and grow people will be drawn to you People will want what you've got. Yeah, yeah, it's really fantastic. Clark, thanks ever so much for your time. Oh, thanks, Sam. I'm, God I'm, bless I'm, you. I'm, I'm, I'm really chuffed that things seem to be going so well for you. And uh, all the best, mate. Thank you, mate. God bless you. Well, there you go, Clark Carlisle. He was a great centre-back and he's a great bloke too. He's been through a lot, but he remains curious about his own mental health, which I think is really important for all of us. You don't just have to accept the way you feel or the way you think if it's causing you pain. Talk to someone, try to understand and unpick the way you are and you'll have a good chance of living a happier life. That's one of the biggest lessons I'm taking from my chat with Clark anyway. Thanks for listening as always. Subscribe to the research sandelaney.substat.com and remember everyone, don't let the dickheads get you down. Bye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 